welcome to Beyond Beckdale, the podcast about film and feminism. I'm your host, Contrera. Thank you very much for joining me. Do you want to tell everybody a bit about yourself and what you do? Uh, sure. So I, I'm a you know freelance writer slash film critic. Um, a lot of my stuff is on Jump Cut Online and Ready Steady Cut and Filmotomy. And I just like to look at um, older movies and kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess I, I'm just, I, I, I really enjoy movies from all time periods. I, I got my start kind of doing the 1001 movies you must see before you die list because I thought that was kind of like a, a good thorough grounding in film history. So, so yeah, just a big film buff. Did you, did you watch all of them? Have you watched all of them? No, <laughs> I've seen probably, um, I want to say like two to 300 of them. And I think I've reviewed maybe like a hundred, 150, but no, I'm like nowhere near being done with the list. Well, I think um, every film list is subjective, isn't it? So it might be that you'll come to a point where you think maybe I don't need those that last one. I don't know. Yeah, but, um... I can just write those ones off. Yeah. <laughs> but that's pretty good going, two to three hundred. Like you're nearly a third there. So yeah, I've um, <laughs> I've got one of those thick books. Yeah, that's like a thousand and one movies to see before you die. And I've seen some of them, but I wouldn't want to put a number on it. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard because, like, not all of them are super easily accessible. Like, a lot of the silent films, yes. they're not really, you know, on Netflix. So it's it's kind of harder with some of them. But I feel like it's a good thing to aspire to, but sort of just on the back burner. Absolutely. And also... um in terms of kind of watching cinematography develop and, and things like that, because like we're so spoiled nowadays with everything that can be done. And if we're looking at kind of modern CGI and how we can now actually like recreate younger versions of famous actors and actresses, it's crazy um, to see what people did without having that technology is amazing. And I think you only really see that if you can get back to the, the kind of start of cinema. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's crazy. Like I was watching um, The Invisible Man uh, a few months ago from like the 30s. Yeah. And the way that they make him invisible is crazy <laughs> that they're doing it like there's no CGI, but he is invisible. It's just a blank space wearing like a hat and a coat. And it's it's crazy. It's so cool. I've never seen the proper film, but I've definitely seen that. I must have seen like a still or something or like a trailer. Oh, I don't know if it's a trailer. But um, yeah, I need to watch that to see. But yeah, the inventiveness is phenomenal from before. And that's kind of the magic of cinema. Um. In terms of what the podcast is doing this season, we're kind of breaking it down into two discrete subjects. One um, is called specialist subject, where I'm interviewing people about something that they feel particularly strong about or they're an expert in. And the other side is Trojan horse, which I think is what we're going to talk about today. 
Um, and how I see a Trojan horse in terms of Beyond Bechdel is a female performance or female role, something that a woman has done in cinema, which sits outside of what we normally talk about here, which is about the Bechdel test and, and women talking to women and interacting with women. This is more about celebrating a female performance and the success of a woman who's doing something which absolutely would not pass the Bechdel test and otherwise might be overlooked because they're in a film or in a genre or something like that which is dominated by men. So maybe if you could introduce uh, your Trojan horse. Sure. So I I was thinking a lot about this, and I thought what would be a good choice for this is Nurse Ratched from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, because it is a film where she barely interacts with any other women. There's barely any other women in the yeah. film. There's like <laughs> McMurphy's two like girlfriends who show up, and then kind of like the other nurses, and she's constantly surrounded by this group of of men, male patients who are. Um, she has power over, like she is the de facto leader of their day-to-day lives. And um, so she's in this position where she can really kind of like bend all of them to her will, except for McMurphy. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I, I thought she would be kind of a natural fit for, for the Trojan horse. I think she's a perfect fit. I think the next thing to do is if maybe you could briefly summarise the film's plot and then um, we can go from there and talk particularly about Nurse Ratchet. Sure. Um, So One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a film, I think, 1968, um, Miles Foreman, and... Jack Nicholson plays R.P. McMurphy, who's a criminal slash statutory rapist, I think. Um, And he decides that if he acts crazy, he can get out of his prison sentence and he'll be in like a cushy mental institution. Like this is his thought process. So he decides (laughs) to do that. And he ends up on this ward that is run by Nurse Ratchet, who's sort of an iron will leader of the group. And they butt heads a lot. There's a kind of a power play between McMurphy, who just sort of wants to have fun and still wants to kind of live his life by his rules. And then Nurse Ratched's desire for there to be like very uh, strict rules and order in place in this institution. And so this sort of power play plays out with, you know, pretty um, unpleasant consequences for R.P. McMurphy in particular. Um, But yeah, it's really just about um, him and his relationship with all the men on the ward and his dynamics with Nurse Ratched. And yeah, um, I think it's supposed to be kind of about um, what happens when you don't conform to what society's expectations are and how like that can be dangerous for you um, and and things like that, like classic 60s, late 60s topics. Mm. So yeah, that's kind of one flew over the cuckoo's nest in a nutshell. Yeah, perfect. I think as well that it's also about this idea that yeah that that being seen as as what in those days mentally deranged or what have you. I, I think we're a lot more PC about that. But back when the film was made, um, is seen as some kind of easy way out. That it's something you can pretend to be, and it's not as difficult and challenging as maybe being in prison. When in fact, I think the film explores. Um, like you were saying, lots of different ways that it it changes what we think about somebody based on where they are, who they interact with, what is crazy, and um, you know, is this even uh, are the various forms of crazy demonstrated by the characters even recognizable forms of mental illness? Because I still feel like back then, 
um that there's the idea that everybody was putting it on i i i think maybe that's that's the mcmurphy character is saying oh it's easy to do this when in fact there's such a huge range of possible mental illness at play and it doesn't mean that everybody is textbook crazy acting up but is instead going through their own own personal hardships but can still be perfectly pleasant people interacting with others um but that's not really what we want to talk about today because that's about the interplay between the male characters which is part of the reason why this is an Oscar winning and and so beloved film but what's really fascinating about it is this character of Nurse Ratchet and how she is seen to be this figure of authority who has to come up against the McMurphy who is the character that the audience is rooting for so I don't know if you want to talk a bit more about Louise Fletcher's performance and what you think she brings to it and what it what it shows about a a, a woman's role in a male dominated film yeah I think Louise Fletcher is, is so good in this role I think she has this sort of um untouchable cold presence to her in this film Mm. that I think is sort of born out of the need to have this uh, incredibly professional veneer in kind of a, you know, a male sphere where you need to be um, unequivocally in charge at all times. And, but I think what's really interesting about her character in this film is how nuanced it is, because I think you can look at her as the villain of the film. And there are definitely moments where she oversteps and and does things that are just cruel and manipulative to the patients. But, I mean, at least when I watch it, like, my mother was a nurse, and I can also appreciate the fact that, like, McMurphy's coming into her house, and he's <laughs> upending everything. And um, there, there are points where I, I do see that it is beneficial to most of the patients on this ward to have a sense of structure and order in their day-to-day lives. And that McMurphy may be fun. He may be doing cool stuff, you know, with, with some of the guys who can handle it, but for a lot of them, it's overwhelming and it's, it's too much. And so I, I can sort of see, yeah, the nuance that's in this character. And I, I think there are, yeah, there are points where she definitely goes into like evil monster territory, but it's always also like very human. And um, yeah, I, I really just love the way she plays it where there are just like these slight moments where it goes from like, okay, this is reasonable behavior to every once in a while. Or like, no, you're, you're definitely, um, you're feeling the authority a bit too much. And I think um, for for Louise Fletcher, her performance in this film was something that was really hard for her because I think it was tough with all of the male characters, all of the actors mm-hmm. sort of putting up a wall between her and them because obviously you can't develop like this close friendship with the person who's, I mean, you can, I guess, but like it might not play well out on screen if you seem like you're too friendly with the the character. And I think it was really tough for her to be so separate from everybody else kind of emotionally in the film. I can explain everything. Please do, Billy. Explain everything. Everything? (laughs) Aren't you ashamed? No, I'm not. You know, Billy, what worries me is 
how your mother is going to take this. Well, I definitely think that she is on a power trip. <laughs> I think one of the 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 funniest parts of it almost is how believable it is that someone could that a woman could take that power and utilize it for her own nefarious gains. Um, do you know if going back to your point about the the wall between them? Do, do, was Jack Nicholson trying to go method at any point? Do you think any of the cast were deliberately like putting up the barrier? Because that would make sense with the performances. Yeah, I I think it is um, in part an intentional choice. I, not to like exclude her or leave her out, but just to sort of preserve that atmosphere. Because I know for this film, they did go to like mental institutions at the time, and they they tried to like ground the film as much as possible in sort of this closed environment. And um, so I think, I think part of it was definitely intentional to, to keep her separate, but I also think it's just sort of a natural effect of the type of scenes that they're filming that, you know, maybe she's not going to be the one that they go to between takes, you know, just to like sit and chat with because of the, just the dynamics within the characters. I also think there's gender differences. I think it's okay to to call that out and say that, that that most of the characters are kind of around the same age who were all the inmates. And I can imagine that they had so many scenes together and were in that, you know, the, the confines of the institution um, or the, the studio creation of that, that they were probably all together, yeah, you know, playing cards like they did and all the things that they did in between takes. And I can imagine that um, maybe they didn't feel like they had as much in in common with her because I think it's it's perfectly acceptable for there to be gender differences in casts but it's the harder thing here with Fletcher is that yes yeah, she really was almost the only female character and so therefore she must have felt ostracized even just by just by the maths the, the gender maths really yeah and I think there's actually like a, a pretty famous story about her in this film where I think she was getting pretty fed up with just the fact that they didn't really see her as a, I, I, I don't know. An um, equal? It's, I, I don't even know if I would say equal. Like they just saw her as just this separate entity and they were sort of keeping her in that nurse ratchet box. And I think she actually like stripped during this, like just backstage. Um, to just to like have there be like some sort of reaction from the guys because I think she just felt so closed off and that they weren't seeing her as like a human person. They were yeah. just seeing her as this sort of like untouchable nurse cold persona. And I think she hated like the fact that that was just how she was being treated behind the scenes too. Yeah. So I think she was trying to be like, look, I'm a person too. So I, yeah, that's, I guess something that happened. It's a bold move. Do you know how they reacted to it? I suppose that the story is her, is what she does, really. Maybe not their reaction, but did it help? I think so. I mean, I think it was towards the end of production. Um, I'm just reading, like, reading about it now, and I yeah. think she. It says like she was just tired of having to play the ice queen while everybody else got to be kind of like crazy and fun and like. Um, just over the top with stuff where she had to be like very restrained and just serious all the time. Yes. So yeah, I guess the, it's a power play in its own. <laughs> it is. It's one of those things that actually we can talk about in terms of feminism, really, because you could have 
one point of view which is like oh it's a woman who has to reduce herself to her you know base female body in order to show that she's not the character she's playing and then that speaks to um her almost being punished for being good at the job because i'm absolutely convinced that the other cast members would still be able to recognize that someone can be a brilliant actor and it's not their personality but I suppose maybe if they didn't know her so much first um so you know that there might be a part of me that kind of bristles at that but then there's the other part which is that why shouldn't she own her sexuality or even me jumping to conclusions why why is taking why is undressing necessarily something from a sexual perspective I mean it's just more like oh we all wear underwear (laughs) we're all human beings what do you think yeah, and I, I think uh, because there's definitely those two, yeah, those two takes, those two dichotomies, and I think that's something we all like have to struggle with. Um, <laughs> I I feel like in this way, it's her sort of expressing her humanity as much as her sexuality, like just like I am a person. This is me stripped bare. I am vulnerable. Like I am, you know, I'm not this like uptight, bristly monster. Um, you, you can question like whether that should have been necessary, whether there like should have been a working environment where she felt so isolated that she felt like she needed to do that. But then again, maybe that was something that she just wanted to do like that. I don't know. Um, So there's a lot of different ways to look at it. Um, Yeah. But I I like the story. I like how it makes us think about this. And it also, I think, speaks to Fletcher. She doesn't strike me as an actress who has been intimidated in a way that some other actresses might have been again you know we don't know her so um we could go and interview her she's still alive I think she's 84 or so I wonder if she'd uh, want to give us her feminist critique of the film (laughs) but um I've always thought with her work that she's always had commanding performances I know that she's um she's pretty tall she's 5'10 and I think that's probably something that Foreman looked into like that it was not only that she was a woman but that maybe she I always thought she had quite a kind of I'm trying to think of the right word not stocky but she had a good presence she 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 didn't stoop Mm. or anything she was always and that might have been the role but I think it's also the actress um another thing I wanted to talk about is um uh, obviously this this uh film uh she did win the Oscar didn't she I know she was not she she did win the Oscar for the role yeah yeah Yeah. she won this um she won the Oscar she won the BAFTA yeah um yeah yep so it was universally critically um uh, loved and lauded I I'm particularly interested in her position because sometimes I think that winning these accolades is is great if she's winning it for the performance which I think you know nine times out of ten that's what people thought but there's also a little part of me which thinks was she lauded so much because this was a role that we didn't see women playing the uh, the assertiveness and and the you know like you said earlier the kind of the the easing into a power trip wickedness as well is something that women don't necessarily get to portray on screen do you think there's anything that that could be like kind of low level sexist in relation to her winning the oscar i don't know it's it's hard to say um i feel like i would probably want to look at what other things were nominated within maybe the past, like the five years leading up to this, Mm. because I don't think it's necessarily, um, 
uh, untrampled ground in film history for like to have a female character who's sort of this, um, you know, unfeeling, humorless kind of school mom presence like i think <laughs> the school there mom is part, an element of that yeah definitely it, that's a good point that that is a that is a, a female trope really isn't it so sorry as you were saying yeah no i mean i i i think like it is something that's been um um you know tackled in film before and it is sort of like a little bit of a stereotype but i think what makes her performance really Oscar worthy and, and why it got such a good reception is because um it is it is fairly fairly nuanced I think and um I, I it's 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 not just so straightforward as like okay this this woman's not letting us have any fun like there's there's more to it and I think it does more straightforwardly address the inherent power play in it that a lot of other films wouldn't have tackled so yeah yeah I would like to know about our cigarettes May I have my cigarettes, please, Miss Ratchet? You sit down, Mr. Cheswick, and wait your turn. Go ahead, sit down. Mr. Cheswick, you sit down! So it's the 1975, the 48th Oscar ceremony that she won. And uh, the other nominees were Isabel Jani for The Story of Adele H. And Margaret for Tommy. Glenda Jackson for Hedda, which I'm guessing is probably an adaption of uh, Hedda Gabler. And Carol Kane for Hester Street. And uh, we were just talking off mic and I was saying how I barely know any of these films. And that speaks to something interesting where it, it sounds like from these nominees Adele H is in the title Hedda is probably Hedda Gabler she's the lead character it it, it sounds like it maybe at this Oscars they were totally going for these films which were based around the lead female character instead of perhaps being the the co-lead which I think um and Margaret might have been in Tommy whereas obviously Louise Fletcher is the is the is the significant female character but she's certainly not the lead and maybe not even the co-lead she's the an antagonist I would say yeah yeah I mean I'm looking at this list and Margaret like it's not a big role in Tommy she plays Tommy's mother yes and it's not a substantial performance um okay I mean, so that's a support, that's almost a supporting so yeah it, and then yeah. Carol Kane is definitely the lead in Hester Street I've okay. just seen that recently oh that's please tell like, me about Hester Street um it's actually really cool it's about um this man, um, this Jewish man who lives in New York City in like the at the turn of the century, and he's um, completely like assimilated into New York life. Um, he's like kind of denying his like Jewish heritage a little bit, and he brings his wife and son over. And his wife is still very much like old country, and that's that's Carol Kane. Um, yes. And so it's sort of her um, kind of assimilating into into American culture, but like on her own tar on her own terms. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting. I, I had never really heard of it before, but I just watched it like a couple weeks ago. So, and just to check this, it says adapted and directed by Joan Micklin Silver, and Joan sounds like a woman. Yes, so there you go. Never heard of her. I wonder if this was her only film. So, oh no, that's she, pretty cool. She, no, she made lots. She made lots, but not things that I'd heard of. 
So that's really cool. Yeah, this was definitely her most celebrated film, but oh, there you go. We've got another Trojan horse and we didn't even know. I love it. <laughs> so maybe you liked Hester Street because you secretly knew it was directed by a woman. That's what I guess. Yeah, I think I definitely could could feel from the characters of like a woman wrote this because the female characters are so nuanced and it just yeah. If you're earning an Oscar nomination, then you've got to be impressing enough people. So yeah, shout out for feminism and directing then. But I think um yeah, generally this is this is my ignorance. So I've watched a lot of Oscar films, but I certainly haven't watched all of the films with all the individual uh, acting nominees because I find the acting category so fascinating because there's always at least a couple of outliers where the film doesn't get much love but it would get an acting nod when someone um, really showcases their talent um, but I suppose in a way Nurse Ratchet is it is not is something that you could have seen I think if you knew the film was going to be successful I don't think it's a shock that Fletcher's performance um, had won so many accolades do you agree? Oh, yeah, no, I agree. I think uh, you can tell by like every part of this film that it was going to be like a big Oscar film and especially Louise Fletcher's role in it. Yeah, definitely. Um, Another thing I want to talk about in terms of her performance is uh, the film also talks about ECT, electroconvulsive shock therapy, and that being something that was frequently available um, to those as a, a seeming cure to their potential mental illness. And um, it definitely seemed to be something that the Ratchet character was pro or, or, or was certainly towing the line in, in that sense. Um, I wonder if that's something to explore as well in terms of um, male and female performances are, are, can often be divided into, oh, a man is strong and will take the violent... Um, option if that's available and a woman will always try to see something a, a, a more uh, pacifist response I don't know if you have any thoughts on ECT I'm kind of putting you on the spot there <laughs> with that but I think it's <laughs> no I mean yeah. I think it's an interesting um it's an interesting thought and I, I'm also thinking about the fact that like she is the woman and she runs like the group therapy sessions yes. where they talk about their feelings um and then contrasting that with um electric shock therapy. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it definitely is like the more violent and like traditionally masculine thing. Um, and she obviously supports the use of it within this, this system. Um, as I think most, a lot of mental health professionals would have in the, you know, seventies when this Mm. film was taking place. But, but yeah, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't really given it a ton of thought to be honest. I'm really interested in, like, you know, seeing whether we inadvertently stereotype. Well, I, I think I do do it myself all the time, frankly. And I think you're right about the the, the counselling sessions. But I think this performance has often been called passive aggressive, and I think that's almost like a a physical way of showing that. Which is, in one sense, she's like, "Please talk about your feelings," but actually, she's saying don't know whether I believe that we can treat your feelings other than with this invasive electric damaging method and I think to have someone who's in this because we haven't really talked about her um her look as well which I think is really important to the character obviously this is a very white film in um in certainly in terms of the uniform and the white walls and everything in the institution um but her pristine 
nurse's outfit, I think is some a sight to behold. Yeah, and and there's that one scene um, towards the end when they have the party, and um, it's the 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 ward is in shambles, and her yeah. <laughs> her cap is on the ground, and it's like kind of messy now. And yeah, I feel like that is just that moment where she's like telling one of them to get her cap, and it's it's um like a, a visual representation of how um, off kilter her position has become in this. Um, environment and how she needed in she needed to have this pristine perfect kind of highly starched uniform in order to project her strength and authority so yeah I think it's partly I think Foreman must have thought that he was showing that things have changed but also that she no longer it's almost like the clothing held some of her authority and if that becomes disheveled or she's not wearing it all perfectly then suddenly she may feel almost differently about herself so it's as much about um how she's created this hard surface and also how everybody else sees this I think it's a wonderful film for um what authority means is it something that you can create and then if you believe it enough and act accordingly then you can encourage other people to believe it um and I certainly think that's something about government authorities and 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 you know it's uh, the, the kind of that complex um yeah so I don't know I don't know what you you think about that in the film and whether she's also trying to represent um like the man for want of a better word the woman the the institutions I think yeah so there's there's something about that idea of a uniform where um if you have kind of a hard emotionally hard job that you kind of build yourself up to do it by putting on this uniform and sort of taking on this persona. That's maybe not how you are in your everyday life with your family, with your kids, but this is how you are at work because this is how you need to be at work. And um, I think it's, it's definitely to project that image of authority and that she has everything under control um, in an, an inherently like destabilized environment where (laughs) um, chaotic things happen at any given moment. Um, and I, I think it's also sort of um, stealing herself up to to be this kind of to be this person. And yeah, I don't remember anything. I don't think you see any of her home life or anything. I think she's only in the confines of the hospital, isn't she? Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really just when she gets there in the morning and pulls up, and and there's never any indication of anything outside of her role in the environment because the film doesn't super see her as a person who has a life you know it's just sort of like yes. this is the man you know I mean I, I as in like the, the, the were, establishment yeah while <laughs> you were saying that I was um I was coming to that conclusion myself I was like yes she is she she is a representation without being a cipher I think that's a really fine line to tread is that you know if any director is wanting to um convey a message other than just what we're seeing at face value then we can normally like extrapolate that the people are actually representations for other groups or or institutions um and you know the the negative maybe would be to think 
oh, she isn't a person because we don't see her. We, we see the mask dropping, but the, the vast majority of the time we we see the the strict version of herself. We don't see the softness. But I think that this is such an amazing performance and, and from, from Fletcher and also Foreman's um, direction is that there, there is a humanity, even if it's not shown in the traditional wifely mother female roles we we still see her her not necessarily her struggle but her representation as trying to hold it all together um that's probably I'm guessing one of the reasons why you like this so much I don't know if you remember why you thought of the performance was it because of the standout with all the other male characters Yeah, I think I just remembered being really interested by how she, like, you can see it in her face when she's trying to, like, subtly cope with things that are becoming out of her control and how she's kind of maneuvering situations to kind of gain the upper hand again. And I just think it's it's really, really fascinating to watch, like, the cogs turn in her head and you can just see it in her eyes like what her next move is going to be. And I always am kind of drawn to characters who seem like they're playing chess. And um, I just, I just think she's, she's so good in this. And um, I think the human elements of her are those moments where she can feel sort of her, her grasp on the situation slipping away and that she needs to do something to pull it back. And then she's thinking like three steps ahead of what that move's going to be like her, uh, the situation with Billy Bibbit, where she just thinks for a moment and um, she's just like, well, I just um, wonder what your mother would say. Or it's, it's something <laughs> along those lines. And it's yeah. such a devastating thing to drop on him because it's the one thing in the world she could say to ruin him, um, just to break him. And um, so it's not like, you know, it's not likable, but it's it's so fascinating to watch. Yeah, you're 100 percent correct that you would never say the character's likable and, and, and it's really hard to feel sympathy. I think nowadays, not so much because I think we're more nuanced in our critical analysis of, of female characters on screen. But I think certainly at the time, you know, she was put up as this antagonist, uh, bad guy villain of the piece. And I want to go back to uh, what you said about chess playing characters, because that sounds really interesting. So do you have any other like favourite roles? And, you know, they can be male or female of someone who you think is playing those games? Hmm. (laughs) I'm trying to think if I have any others like off the top of my head. Um, who are just, you know, I, I guess this is, you know, super topical, but the <laughs> earlier seasons of like Game of Thrones, it's not film related, but uh, like Cersei and Tyrion. And I, I just like, I'm always interested in those characters who are just kind of like, they, they're taking like a higher level view of the situation and what needs to happen and it doesn't really matter to them if they're being manipulative or cruel it's just sort of like this is how I'm playing the game and it's a game and it's not personal um so I don't know um I I know there's definitely others that I could (laughs) think think of probably in film that are just not coming to my head yeah I I don't know about you but like it's all Game of Thrones all the time still even though we're recording this and it's actually the the entire program is now finished um I still think (laughs) that it it sits with me so much because um you know I'm sure you and I and, and lots of other people who are fascinated and interested 
in film would just fell in love with many of those characters and, and were able to choose between lots of different female portrayals and um uh yeah I loved the political machinations and all the uh, yeah the intrigue and whispering and all of that and I also think that um uh I miss Cersei I miss old old Cersei when she was allowed to scheme and she could do a bit more than drinking wine I thought and that, staring out a window yes. yeah <laughs> because for all my uh writings and rantings about uh the the character arc um the kind of nosedive if you will that Daenerys has taken um I always worried that people who you know look unfavorably on a feminist take on things would say oh you're just saying this because you don't want a woman who seems to be good to be bad and I would always respond no I love seeing evil female characters if they feel believable look at Cersei no one ever said that she couldn't be evil and manipulative but we we always saw in Game of Thrones that we we understood her motivation where whereas with Daenerys I thought I understood her motivation and then obviously in terms of having to finish the series really quickly um that motivation seemed to snap on a a dime um yeah I really don't like this this idea that people think that women just want to see nice women winners on screen I think we want to see all different types of women because women are all different so did you did you feel strongly about Daenerys or is this just me banging the drum uh yeah no I definitely did I mean I I I would have been fine with that as the end point but I felt like they were just rushing to the end point rather than letting that develop um over the course they they didn't give themselves enough time they probably should have had another four or five episodes or maybe another season to kind of develop this going from point a where it's like I am a liberator to point b where I'm just burning innocent people spoilers Uh, you you should have seen that already like by the time this comes (laughs) out I don't think it counts as a spoiler anymore but um yeah it's definitely (laughs) like give me evil women characters who are smart and just out for themselves like I don't care like I want that um I saw recently this movie Dreamland at Tribeca and um with Margot Robbie in it and she's just um this sort of like 1930s era bank robber and she's so interesting because she is just like subtly manipulating situations and um, telling her truth, like telling her version of the truth. And maybe, okay, it doesn't line up perfectly with the actual (laughs) events, but it's like what she needs to say in the moment and um, what she needs to make herself believe. And it's, I, I just love a good, like amoral character. Who's just sort of like, as long as it's developed well and it's interesting, like, I don't care if it's a nicey, nice person or if it's, you know, a literal monster, that's, whatever it just it needs to be well written that's all that matters yes and believable and sometimes it doesn't matter what the gender of the character is in order to behave in a certain way and I'm always looking to the future where there may be genderless roles but other times I I think it's okay to say there's a specific experience that women go through and and we can obviously go into that you know white women versus women of color is a, is, is a different intersection as well but that um uh, that women go through and how women behave which may be different because than a in comparison to a male character because um a machiavellian oh, sorry a machiavellian um female character will use things 
um, that, you know, are seen as textbook female traits in order to get their way with, you know, like heteronormative male characters. I think that um, you saying Margot Robbie has kind of set a light bulb off in my head as well, because I think she must be attracted to these roles. Because let's look at The Wolf of Wall Street um, in Suicide Squad and when obviously she was Tonya Harding. I would say all of those are, are, are playing some kind of intellectual chess or using their wiles to get their own way. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> she's she's good at that. I think she's clearly looking for it as well. In the same way that you're attracted to watching it, she must be attracted to playing it. Um, and I, that's really but, cool because if, if that's something that she's interested in doing and she's able to kind of pinpoint those that early in her career, because, I mean, like, she's a big star now, but she really hasn't been for that long compared right. to a lot of other actresses and it's great that she is able to identify those roles and not feel like she needs to take on so many of like, I guess more, um, I don't know, like wife, <laughs> girlfriends, you know, roles that I feel like even really good actresses sometimes find themselves pushed into like the sort of supporting female character that doesn't really have a lot, but it's in like a prestige film. So it counts. And yeah. Um, she's in goodbye Christopher Robin. And I think that's kind of, an example of that role that I recall. But she's also in, um, oh, I forget what the film's called. The film with uh, Eliz where she plays Queen Elizabeth. Oh, Mary Queen of Scots. Mary Queen of Scots, thank you. I was like, I know it's the Saoirse Ronan's character title, but I couldn't remember who she was, which is a film that I could <laughs> talk about that I have some cri critique of. But I actually found it, and, you and you're right, actually, when I was watching this, I didn't think about how her career is still quite early because it really did go to, from naught to 60 with The Wolf of Wall Street. But the the role that Robbie plays in that, even though, you know, it's a very famous historical British queen, she's not on screen for very much. And she's not manipulative in the way Mary, Queen of Scots is, but still she has a subtlety and like uh, and is going through something and is thinking through everything because she is this queen who you know doesn't really have a husband in the future or, or you know has anyone to be exactly by her side and I think yeah I think that Robbie obviously likes calculating chess playing characters um so you recommend Dreamland then Yeah, Dream Dreamland is really good. I enjoyed it. Um, I, I feel like it didn't get like its reviews are okay, but I thought it was really good. So, okay. yeah. I don't know if it's it maybe if it's has it come out here and I've missed it. When was Tribeca? Uh, that was the beginning of May. So it's okay. it's. I don't think it's out in theaters yet. Okay, but right. oh, we had your mini review here. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm writing one, so I'm like it's on my head, oh. on my brain a lot right now. Well, if it's done, we will link um, to it, definitely. Um, <laughs> I've, got, I've gone off from Fletcher here, and we should probably go go back to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But I, I do believe that um, part of the idea about Trojan Horse is that this female character performance, what have you, um, opens the door for other performances. And I think that Nurse Ratchet really did. Do you have any... Um, favorite lines or favorite things she does you've, you've talked about quite a lot but maybe just something if you want viewers to see next time they catch the film um 
I really love all of her, um, all of the therapy scenes where, um, I, I like in the, in the parts where she's kind of like negotiating with McMurphy Mm -hmm. on certain things. And she already has sort of like this austere image, but you can just hear in her voice the way that she's sort of putting on this extra measured level-headed tone when she's just like, well, if the entire group agrees to it, then maybe we can talk about this. But it's it's all just like um, laying it on really thick <laughs> that she is the level-headed person in this conversation, because I feel like that's something that that a lot of women in, in film and in real life are cognizant of that they have to project this image of being like completely cool headed so that they're not the emotional woman in a room. And I love how you can tell she's so irritated by this person (laughs) that she's in the room with and she doesn't think he belongs there. And she just like, He's just there to like mess up the system that she has. Um, but she has to keep it cool and like not lose it. Um, so I, I love all those scenes. Yeah, that's perfect. And we didn't really talk about actually the relationship between McMurphy and Ratchet, actually, because it is one of the linchpins of the plot. I am, um, again, I wonder if that mirrored, um, to some extent the relationship between the actors as well because Jack Nicholson was probably right in his hell raising key period at that point and um he is such a screen presence you know he he still gets hired now for some truly abominable films that get like raised because he's in there doing his Nicholson this is almost him being like like it'll be it's a showreel film for him isn't it it's like one of his key roles where um it uses everything that he has in terms of being a wise guy but also having a heart of gold and doing something good with his life um and i think the fact that fletcher holds her own with him on screen is something that shouldn't be overlooked because it it isn't easy he can dominate other male characters as well but particularly his love interests or or other female characters unless they are strong against him yeah I think that's a really good point because I think Jack Nicholson has this just this charisma like Mm. whether you like him or not like he is kind of magnetic to watch especially in the 70s when this film is made um and I think yeah he has a very dominant personality like his his um you know stereotyped role like of this yeah hellraiser is (laughs) is a very dominant character and i feel like it works because louise fletcher is um not only really smart in this role like it's a very intelligent and thoughtful performance Mm -hmm. but she also you can just look at her and you can just see like this uh this like rod of iron in her back where she just projects this sense of um strength and like stability that um allows her to play against Nicholson in a way where it feels like they're very well matched. Um, Like he brings like a really emotional frenetic side to their sort of conflict. And then she is, um, you know, the smart chess player who's, you know, just knows what's, what's happening and is, is a kind of unemotional, which I think is, is interesting considering the, the gender dynamics as well. Yeah, it is almost a little bit of a flip to the the tradition, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I think that's the only way it works is, like you said, for her to overly portray the the calm and measured in order to show 
McMurphy up. Um, and I wonder as well if if that was a was something in the performance in the performance dynamic as well between them. I'd love to know how they got on. I don't I don't really know anything about that. But um, I know to be a fly on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> while they were filming this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So I think we can just end with um. This is absolutely a film that people should watch if they haven't already or should maybe go back and have another rewatch and look at Louise Fletcher and see what she's doing um, because it isn't always the main focus. Um, and maybe re reanalyze her status as the villain and whether maybe... Um, yeah, that that's something where it's it's maybe more nuanced. I I think nowadays, um, I saw a theatrical adaptation. Actually, it was quite a few years ago now, maybe eight years ago. But it was Christian Slater, who is obviously the perfect person to ever emulate Jack Nicholson um, on, on stage. And um, I cannot remember the actress who played uh, Ratchet, but I remember feeling all the same way. It was quite true to the film, even though it was theatrical. I don't know if you've ever seen it other than on screen. I remember that production coming out. I remember hearing about it, but I, I didn't see it. Because I remember thinking, like, oh, Christian Slater, he's just going to do his Jack Nicholson voice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure but. he did. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that role is is just as important on stage. Um, and I know it came from a book. Did it also come from, was, was there a play first? I, 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 I don't know. Um. So I think the book... Was first in the yes. 60s and then the movie and then the play. I think yeah. the play came after the movie. But, I think, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Yeah, I that's what I think. The year too. came out by like several years. So. Yeah. But I knew, I knew the book was a big hoo ha. But um, yeah, again, anything final, finally you'd like to say about Louise Fletcher or Nurse Ratched? Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I feel like everybody thinks of this as Jack Nicholson's movie, but I all, I just love how complicated Louise Fletcher is with not a ton of inherent com complexity in the writing. I like what she brings to it because like you were saying, I do think um, her characters do for sort of a reevaluation of how villainous she is because mm -hmm. honestly to me, like watching it now there, yes, there are, are parts where she is a full on villain, but also <laughs> a lot of what she's saying kind of like, makes sense in terms of providing stability in what is best for the majority of the patients on the ward. Like a lot of people who have mental illness, who are in mental illnesses, who are in institutions do benefit from having like structures in place. So they know what's happening every day and there's not a ton of chaotic surprises. Um, so I, I get it. Like I get that, but I get her struggle, I guess is what I'm saying. I don't always agree with it, and I don't think she's a super likable character, but, like, I get it. Yeah. Absolutely. Trish, what's wrong with me? Look, you're having a nervous breakdown. I have those all the time. Just because everything of value in your life has been destroyed, so what? There's still food. So, as you know, Audrey, we call this podcast Beyond Bechdel, and um, initially, in the first season, I was looking at the Bechdel test. So, my first question to you is, what do you think about the Bechdel test? Is it something you apply to films when you're reviewing them or writing about them? Uh, I don't know if it's... I would say that I apply it to what I'm writing, but I think it's a very useful thought experiment like it's it's an important thing to think about even if it isn't necessarily a metric by which we judge 
good films from bad films in terms of their depiction of women. But I think the fact that we've gone so long with movies where women just aren't interacting with each other on screen, or there's not enough women in films for there to even be two women interacting on screen and to not like to have them have a conversation about anything other than like the men, the men in their lives is really interesting and worth talking about. Um, I, I like, it's crazy to me when I first heard of the Bechdel test, I was like, Oh yeah, there's so many movies that just, there's just not enough women characters that, yeah, or they're all so closely related to men that that's all they can talk about. There's nothing else that could conceivably come up. Um, and I think it just shines a light on, you know, who's writing scripts, unfortunately, that are being made mm-hmm. in, in Hollywood that, um, that women's um, depictions are not necessarily a high priority. Um, and I think that also plays into why people have negative views of certain like female characters in movies and stuff or like types of characters and it's like they're not being written well like this is not a reflection of women (laughs) this is yeah anyway um so I think it's important yeah to cap it off I think the Bechdel test is important (laughs) no your your thoughts are great yeah and it's kind of similar processes that I go through I think even the existence of it and the quick application like um I'm always looking at the Bechdel test website because it's so good that like if you just something you haven't seen in a long time you're like hmm I don't remember it passing um the whole concept of like one scene really aggravates me as well because and the the way I want to interrogate it is you can have a film that doesn't pass but it treats its female characters well um that you know, it doesn't matter that it passed, but those films are so few and far between that all the films where um, it's passed and quite highly passed, lots of scenes, always seem to be ones that not only I like, but that feel more realistic with the depiction um, of women on screen. I thought it was quite funny going back to Game of Thrones, actually, that I don't know if you you saw that study that said it was only 22% of the dialogue in season eight was from female characters. Um, And it's clear that if you don't let women talk to each other, then they can't adequately convey their feelings. Because if you don't let any characters talk to each other unless you're really making a silent film or something where you can convey it by other methods um a character will never ever adequately explain their motivation um so I I like yeah I just I like a simple application just because I do get a sense of well-being when it does pass or I get (laughs) yeah or I get angry if it's passed from some ridiculous reason but um yeah I wonder I wonder whether it's something that we could ask writers to think about when they start writing the scripts. I've never thought about it like that. Instead of at our stage of analysis, something at the point, I can imagine all these big wigs, producers talking to each other going, oh, we need more ladies in this. They need to talk to each other. And then um, I'm always like, uh, one day someone will hear this on the podcast if I keep saying it, that, you know, <laughs> how they have in- intimacy coordinators. I'm like, I could totally be your Bechdel test coordinator. If you need, if you need, need some advice on how to have women talk about each other about something other than about I'm your girl so um are there any particular films that um that pass or fail it that that um you want to talk about I I really want to talk about Booksmart but I haven't seen it so I'm not going to cheat and pretend that I've seen it even though I know it passes um I saw it it passes it's it passes so much yeah so so everyone needs to go see that (laughs) um 
the one that I think about all the time is this movie from the 80s by um, Susan Seidelman called uh, Making Mr. Right. Which oh, I've never is, seen it. Yeah, go on. Okay, it's like objectively just this weird little movie about this woman who's like a um, a publicist. Like she's a big wig at like a publish uh, a publicist firm, and she's in charge of doing publicity for this um, government program, which is sending like this android into space and like trying to humanize the android so that they can like do press tours with him and stuff and the android is john malkovich he also plays the scientist who creates the android who also looks exactly like him um and she falls in love with the android but anyway long story short there's like a really um really great relationship between the main character and then um glenn headley plays her best friend and they just i feel like they have a really really authentic friendship that is really nice to see on screen where they just talk about stuff. And, um, I just, I think it's really fun. And I always try to talk about it when I can, because like nobody's seen it. But Yeah. I'm going to watch it. Definitely. That's got to be, it's almost like saddening in a way when you know, it's a film directed by a woman as well, because it's like, how do we find it so easy to do this because it sounds like that's clearly not the point that the friendship is not the point of the film the the film is a romantic comedy yeah yeah yeah, it's it's totally like a side thing in the film it just happens to be done really well but yeah I think that um that's kind of the goal for me is that when not even the key plot points um can have Bechdel passing and successful portrayals of natural female friendship or, or, or even uh, female work colleagues, I don't know, family members. Um, it's that, because I think that's how you get it into everyone's minds, what, what the role of women on screen is and how it has to be the same as men. It's, it's, I always have this thing, I don't know whether you have this, where I, <laughs> I know because I'm weird, um, where I now, when I'm watching a film, I'm, I look at these characters that have one line or are in the background doing something or that interact with the lead. A good example is like a detective movie. So you've got someone who's a detective, they're the lead and they go and see the police or they go and interview someone. And I'm like, how many of those people could be women why are they always men it's it's so easy to flip that that wouldn't pass the Bechdel test well depending on if you're if your detective's a woman it would um but I just it's it's having these relationships um on screen that aren't the lead ones but that are still like benefiting women is really what I'm aiming for yeah, you know, I I do think about that a lot because I used to work well before I yeah, um I used to work at a casting office and then also at a talent agency in my early 20s. So I saw a lot of breakdowns for films where you know, you'd have like the character, the name, and then like the physical description of the character. Mm-hmm. And it's shocking how many of them would be like under fives, so like characters that have under five lines in a film, mm-hmm. um who had like a very specific like age range or like gender or race that there's zero reason why it would need to be that like the default is always white man and um it's 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 like you watch movies and you're like why like was there any reason why that couldn't have been a female character or is there any reason why that couldn't have been a black character like so it's yeah it's it's really strange and um 
it's definitely something that I think about it just because I'm always aware of like the breakdowns that go out that are so specific. Yeah, that's fascinating about your previous job. But I just think, <laughs> you know, directors, uh, writers, you can you can get a quick win here. It's it's a step in the right direction. And yeah, you're totally right as well. Like, um, white men, it, it could be a black guy. But I, I always take my standpoint, which is, I will, I kind of list things, I rank them in terms of what I want to see. And um, I always want to see more women. And to me, it, it doesn't matter what their racial makeup is. If I can just see more more women on screen, I'm happy. But I suppose in that basis, we need to be pushing up women of colour because they are definitely the um, most up under represented and I think it's it's happening now it's 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 another of those things where you see, if you see it and and it's as in in uh, a film where it's not something like crazy rich Asians where you're expecting everybody to be of a certain racial makeup when you see it there's part of me it's like oh that's so good they did that and then also part of me which is like I'm still seeing it and noting it so we haven't quite got to the point where I'm like gender colorblind, but that I'm seeing that it's now pointedly being done. I, I you know, I, I, I don't want it to just be lip service. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, no, that is always the struggle. And I, we are, yeah, the, the films that are coming out, I think, are in a much better position than they were 10, 15, 20 years ago in terms of having just sort of like a more purposeful look at making sure that your film is not just filled with white men unless there's like a very good reason for it and even then like come on but I yeah I think it all goes back to like when you write scripts like women are kind of trained from you know when they're young to watch media and you know um and and watch films with an eye for um, relating to and identifying with male characters. And I think for a long time, men were never expected to make that leap for female characters. Um, and I think that's changing. And I think kids growing up now, like little boys have, you know, female lead, like film characters that they can look up to and they can see as the protagonist of the film and, and really identify with. But for a long time, I just don't think that was an expectation. And I think that is reflected in the writing that's put out. Um, because I think men just have a harder time getting into the mind of a woman and having her be like the lead in their project and having it not be kind of a, you know, or not even the lead, just having like them have roles in in things. So I don't know. No, absolutely. I think that it's hard for us to put ourselves in the position of a white man who has so many male uh protagonists or characters or whoever to identify with that why would they necessarily look at the female ones but the only way to change that is to reduce the number of uh white male protagonists or or on-screen characters and in films going forward um so yeah i i i will recognize that People do often find, I think, you know, in psychological studies, people will look at someone who, who you know, reflects themselves the most on screen. But we were always forced, as you say, to identify with the lead who was, you know, 99% of the time a man. And I don't, I don't remember ever not doing that. I think it's just something naturally we grow up with if we're film and TV lovers. But at the same time, there is an extra feeling of excitement and being seen when 
the lead character or, or co-lead or what have you is a woman who is doing all of these things um and i i really look forward to like getting that sense of satisfaction in more movies in the future yeah and i i just love the the idea that kids now like little girls have so many so many great female role models in film and tv um whereas i i didn't when i was growing up i didn't feel like i didn't have enough but like now that i see the sort of films that are coming out i'm just like oh what a what a really nice time to be you know to be like a little girl like you have ray you have like all these great yeah. characters it's yeah. Yeah, I agree actually. It's just I was just making it all about me then. But um <laughs> because I think we're in a transition or we are living through the transition and I would love for the transition to have finished by the time that the, you know, five year olds who who are idolizing Ray are teenagers and can start looking for their teenage movies like Booksmart. I, I don't think we'll quite get there, but it's so nice to feel positive about cinema when so much of the history of it hasn't reflected well on female portrayal mm. so is that to, to sign off um is there anything else you're looking forward to this year apart from book smart oh man um <laughs> yeah there's a million things i have like such a long watch list um i'm probably gonna go see the souvenir like this weekend um rocket man i don't know there's <laughs> there's so much good stuff coming out yeah, well, you can always come back if you want and then talk about other things you've seen and, and other subjects. But um, I think this has been amazing. I think we've dissected a really important character in film and uh, we've ended this with being hopeful for the future. So let's let's stop now before we think of anything terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, and where can we see your work? Is there anything you want to plug? There are still a few new pieces on Jump Cut Online that you can catch. Audrey Brooks, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Next week, it's just me talking about one of my specialist subjects. And it's pretty serious, but also really entertaining. Here's a little snippet to whet your appetite. I never met her, but I have her picture on my wall and my desktop and my cell phone. I know her face so well that when I flipped through a yearbook and saw an uncaptioned side profile picture of her as a freshman in high school, I recognized her right away. I'd never even seen her profile before, but I had studied her face. Find out more in the next episode of Beyond Bechdel. Catch you next time. Mm-hmm.